working out because I fucked up my back sneezing. Yeah. So I don't want to like hurt my back. Are you being serious about the sneezing? Dead serious. So the guy goes, what are you trying to get out of this? I said, I don't want to hurt. I just want to be able to sneeze. I don't want to hurt my back sneezing. (laughs) Like babes and I don't want to hurt my back sneezing. So I'm doing like the bow flex on on the bench and... I'm lifting 30 pounds. I'm like, wait, does this mean that I could only bench 60 pounds? Because that's pretty embarrassing. I'm like embarrassed for myself. No, that's not what it means. So he said, he said, no, it's not. It's not exactly one for one. It's the tension that's yeah. that's in addition to the weight that's coming from that. Oh, I gotta get my hat. I can't do this naked. You could definitely, you could definitely lift more than that. All right, how was your, uh, how was your trip in? It was, it was actually really good. LaGuardia, yeah. it's the first time I've been back to New York since. The new, was, the new was, LaGuardia is sick. Yeah, for sure. I was like kind of dreading going back and then, uh, actually it's pretty nice. But last time I was here was like March 6, 2020 for a, a real, now for a real vision interview. And you had five seconds to leave the city. Exactly. I think it was like the last plane out before everything kind of locked down. It was in that. The shit went down since. like March four thirteenth or yep. something. Yeah. It was start. Like, so I. So the thing is, is that was my my old job. I was basically the head of commodities over NDR. So back then I was still yeah. with Ned Davis Research, and so they had come called me in to talk about like my outlook for oil, and you know obviously like that's when everything the shit hit the fan. And I said on that. In that interview, I was like, I think everyone needs to keep an eye on COVID. This is serious. You know, demand out of China getting hit is going to be right. like it's. This and then a week be, later, everybody had their eye week, on COVID. Like three days later, yeah, that, yeah. and they said, then I, I came back for like a follow up three days later because everyone was like, that that was that's stale now. And my line was, they're like, well, where, how low do you think oil can go in this COVID scenario? I said, I think there's strong support at zero. Yeah. And that was my line. And you were wrong. Exactly. <laughs> that's the thing. There wasn't strong support at zero. It was like negative thirty. Nicole, my daughter told me I dress like Adam Sandler. No, you don't. That's what she said. No, you don't. I was like, what do you mean? She's no, like, when I saw that photo of you at the food, uh, the food drive thing. The that was a lazy eye foot. But, that was an Adam Sandler But he wears, he wears well, that, shorts. No, that's how that conversation came up. Yeah. I go, Tara, can I post this picture of you? You look great. Because she has final approval. Yeah. She said, yeah, but I'm more worried about you. You dress like Adam She's Sandler. She's the cutest. So... I, I, uh, oh, I'm like, why? She's like, well, dude, you'll wear like a button down shirt and like lacrosse shorts and a sideways hat. You don't and you're do like that. 58 years old. I'm like, I'm none of those things that you don't, you're saying. You don't wear button down shirts with shorts. I might. No, you don't. Not like publicly, but I might. Oh, by the way, here's a pro tip that is actually useful. So I can't get that fucking beep, 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 the messaging to stop. Yeah, make it stop. I, I, so. And you know it sprinkles every time. So I know she how to do what it. I'm doing. Watch, watch, watch. Up here. Oh. Focus. Hit focus and hit do not disturb. And that'll t- that'll silence your munchies. For one hour. How great is that? Yeah, it's great because it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. And then I get the ping. And the ping, does the ping go to everyone's ear? Well, yes, it's loud. So, yeah. So oh, I'm sorry. Put my mic on! That's the, all right. Put the handsome lens on, please. <laughs> so how rare are 4% updates? I, I have this on my spreadsheet. I just forgot to do the... the they don't happen that often. Is the S&P up four or just the more. Dow? It's up more. It's up even more? Dow's, I don't think Dow's up. Dow's, uh, S&P's 4.8. Wow. We might, do, we might hit the five spot. Oh, wow. Look at this. Cl- look, at, look at how we're running into the close. So do you remember we were talking to Pisani and Kyla? Yeah. The title of the show is Good News is Bad News? Yeah. And we were saying, how poetic would it be if the stock market bottoms on the worst core, the worst, uh, core CPI headline in 40 years? And is that so far what it looks like happened? Well, that was the bottom. 
Huh. Doesn't mean that that's the bottom, but that certainly was close enough. Most, that was a bottom. Close enough. That was a bottom. Well, if the and this is great news because stocks are rallying not in hopes of a Fed pivot, but like actually maybe the Fed could like chill out because the data is doing what they wanted to do, which is nice. All right. It's not like desperation pivot where things are breaking. They need to pivot. Um, you see this move in, in the two year? Yes. All over it. I'm trying to get this Bloomberg. All over dollars, dollars collapsing. What do you need? Are you on? Uh, actually, I wasn't able to get on the internet. Was I? Uh, Did you get the connection working? Is it all lowercase or uppercase? Yes, lowercase. Oh, okay. I was. No space. The yeah. password uh, is Sam Bankman-Fried. NVIDIA is up 13%. Amazon's up 11 Facebook's up 10 not to brag. Sell everything. Home Shopify's up 17 Your Home builders are up oh, 9 this morning. Oh, 12%. What's ARK doing? It's oh, up look at this. Look at this move. Okay. Josh is... Using Yahoo Finance, okay. I am. 12.5%. I don't have time for any, anything else. 12.5%. No, I, I, I don't know if I told you that. I bought Zillow after the day after earnings or two days after earnings. And? Are you happy? So far, so good. Look at you. And your meta's up today. Yep. I didn't think that was going to be possible. All right. Are we ready? Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me, Michael Batnick, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Masterworks. Most, Masterworks. Most people, myself included, sorry, do not have the wherewithal, the financial means to buy a Pablo Picasso painting, right? I don't have $6 million just lying around for a Picasso painting. Bar- Barry could probably but, buy one. But I do have money to invest in, in a fractional piece of Picasso. So that's what Masterworks does. You could invest in shares of a piece of art just like you would in uh, the stock market. If you are interested in learning more, please see masterworks.com slash animal. And of course, nothing in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation of an offer to buy or hold an interest in any investment product. To learn more about the risks of investing in Masterworks, see masterworks.com slash disclaimer. All right. John, I'm, I'm crazy loud, but I like it. I, 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 yeah. I want to I I leave it alone. Duncan, Duncan doesn't hurt my ears. <laughs> All right. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the biggest investing podcast in the world. My name is Downtown Josh Brown. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Batnick. Michael, say hello to everyone. That that intro is making me feel very like Garth Algar. I don't like it. Well, you could do the intro next time. You want to do it next week? Uh, Maybe I'm joined as always by Josh Brown. Do it. Do it. Well, I didn't say my uh, sidekick. I said my co-host. Okay. Right? I don't know what you said. Nicole's in the house. John's in the house. Duncan is out sick. And we're sending he's him. He's on the men. Love you, Duncan. He's on the, he's on the men. We love him. We're sending him uh, best wishes. John, pressure's on. I know you're, you're going to be wearing a lot of hats right now, but I feel like we're going to be fine. Gotcha. We're going to be just fine. Uh, John's like an airline pilot a little bit. Like, just his demeanor. i never seen him get rattled before. Right? <laughs> Have, I've never seen you be like, shit. Like, right? Never. It's a uh, time to take the show into no. 30,000 feet. My guy. You got this. All right. We're joined today by Warren Pies. I, I wanted to go with peas, 
No, no. Uh, no, I know it's not that, okay. but I, I just want to see how you'd react. Uh, Warren is a co-founder and strategist at 314 Research, an investment research platform that provides, we wrote this, so, okay. that provides weekly insights, asset allocation frameworks, risk management, and more. Prior to founding 314 Research, Warren led Ned Davis Research's energy and commodity strategy and has worked as a practicing attorney specializing in regulatory approvals. Warren Pies, welcome to the show. Excited to be here. A lot, of people, like, are, a lot a, of people are excited that you What a day. Right. Oh, my gosh. Uh, wait, wait, I got something to say about Warren. So I was not familiar with, with your work, but you sent over some of your charts. And as I'm going through them, I said to Josh— if Warren could talk like 10% as good as like he presents his charts, it's going to be an amazing show. That's yeah. No, it's it. definitely going to be an amazing show. <laughs> Your charts are incredible. So we're super excited to get to them. Yeah. Uh, can we start with Ned Davis research? Sure. Okay. Where do you want to start? Well, that is one of the most storied, I feel like, respected research firms, um, on, I guess, on the street, but they're not really based on Wall Street, but like in the industry, let's say, right? Yeah. Okay. How did you get started there? Wow. Uh, a lot of dumb luck, honestly. I, I was an attorney and I was practicing in the Sarasota area and uh, really didn't like it. It wasn't my thing. I was, you know, kind of just trying to understand the stock market. What kind of law do you practice in Sarasota? Is that like beach law? Yeah, beach law. Exactly. <laughs> I'm guessing a lot of wills. Yeah, a lot of, yeah. A lot of, yes, a lot of old people. No, it, I actually was doing uh, regulatory approvals for the phosphate mining industry. It's okay. Phosphate oh, yeah, I did that. Central Florida. All right, but so how, do, so how do you take that and transition to net There is absolutely research? zero overlap in skills. So right. I had to start from the absolute bottom. So I, I knew a guy who, through my law practice, I met a guy who knew a guy who was running the commodity team at NDR. And I basically, I got, and this is John LaForge. He's now at uh, Wells Fargo doing head of real assets over there at the Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Still friends, play fantasy football with him. Um, awesome guy. He's crazy. And honestly, nobody would give me a shot other than him at NDR. NDR oh, wow. is very straight laced, but John saw, he was like, I don't know what he saw in me, but he saw something. So he hired me. And I started at the bottom. It was kind of frustrating. Uh, or what it, year is this? This was 2011. I was 30. So oh, you're you know, a real you career can, switcher. Yeah, you can do the math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, okay. Yeah, young family and uh, stuff like that. And so it was stressful. And I had to basically learn how to code. Like I remember, for instance, <laughs> they test their, your coding abilities. I had zero coding abilities. They test your coding abilities before you get there. And I, I had was to, that a retina scan? How did they do it? It was an LPAT. Something called the LPAT language like programming aptitude test or something. This I had, is in 2011? It was like 2010 when I started this interview process. They were testing your ability to code for everyone or just for the role Anyone that you who were started to get? there. I mean, in order to do real analysis, you need to be able to code. You need to be able to manipulate numbers and yeah. stuff like that. So that's like part of the, the you know, it's important. And they told me that. Then John told me that when we were at lunch and John's like, you know, look, he had run a hedge fund before that and stuff like that. So he was a little bit more, um, gut feel versus yeah. quant, but he told me, you're going to have to be able to do this. And so I went to, I should probably shouldn't say this too much, but it's, it's not a big deal. I'm gone now, but I went to the company who produced the test and pretended to be another a consultant and said, I would like to see this, this test you used to screen coding mm -hmm. uh, folks. And then um, they gave me the test. So I was able to like get the answers beforehand and that's how I was able to kind of slip by Good the, for you. the coding side of Good that for you. thing. The ends <laughs> justify the means. You got to do what you got to do. I had to do it. Yep. That's and right. So, yep. That's, okay. And that's how I got into NDR. But yeah, that's, that's, it was a little weird way. But what happened when they were like, all right, 
Show us what you can do. Yeah, start coding. Uh, I mean, it was tough. At, <laughs> I had to learn. I mean, it was like there was no faking it. I had to learn. The great thing about NDR, especially back then, it's a totally different place now. But back then, I mean, Ned's retired. A lot of the, the best people are gone now. But back then, they would train you. You know, and, and like there was a guy, Rico, I shout out to Rico and the custom research department. And you would sit down with him and he would give you these custom, uh, these these little practice procs. So you'd start out like coding a little chart of the S&P 500 and you'd add a moving average and then you would do this. And the next thing you know, you're building models mm. and, t- and back testing things. And it frees you. It frees you from going from being someone who just reads blogs and reads real research to someone who can do their own stuff. Right. And that was the, the moment. And for me, I had such an interest in the markets. For me, that was the moment when I was able to really get out there and take my mind and my creativity and actually test what I was interested in. So I just tested everything. And I was I became well known. Fast forward a little bit. I was I did the the first piece of content on master limited partnerships. I took over the energy sector first and it was a lot of work and the. Um, it was picked up by Barron's ultimately. I did the the roundtable on MLPs back in 2013. And that was kind of like from there, I started getting more strategy work and was known more for oil stuff. And that was my shtick. And it still is to this day is like I would go against competitive competitors who were, you know, we they would say, oh, we attend every OPEC meeting, this, that and the other thing. And it's like they, everything is experience. And for me, I was a young guy. All I had was data and models. And so yeah. I was, and that is still, it's really the heart of what we are at 314 Research. Still, we've transported that over. It's really just about quant. It's it's objective, you know, seeing the world as it is, not how we want it to be. Yeah. And not forming a bias, you know, and, and even doing the work and then having an opinion versus having an opinion and trying to figure out how to prove that it's right. Yeah. I mean, so many people, and like we can get into the inflation stuff, which was the story of the day, but so many people, do that in this industry where they have a political bias mm. and then they work backwards to support it. And that's just life. And if you can get beyond that, then you're already way ahead of the game. What's 314? 314 Research. That's our research. No, but what, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What does it stand for? What's the idea? Pi. What's the genesis? It's the, well, it's the number three. 314. And then 14 pi. spelled out. Kind of math plus, plus my last name. I knew Are was, you joking? I knew it was pi. Okay. There you go. Yeah. No, I got that because his last name is Pies. Uh, yeah, I feel like an idiot. I mean, uh, cut that part out. And I'm then it's 3:14. <laughs> uh, that's a big difference between you and I, though. Like, I don't do my own. Re- I don't do my own quantitative research. I wouldn't know how to begin. I'm a very good synthesizer of other people's ideas, and then maybe, hopefully, once a year, twice a year, I can say something that builds on it and makes the research more Come to valuable for people than it otherwise would be. But Michael does all his own, you know, and that's a really big difference between his style and my style. But that's that's a that's a very important skill to have if you're doing research. A lot of research that comes into my inbox is all written, and and you you just say, all right, this is an opinion piece, which there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the same as the kind of work that you are doing. Yeah, precisely. And, and I, I mean, there's a role for all kinds of. Sure. And, you know, you need to have a strategist, a big picture thinker. But I think it really helped me, and that's really where I spend most of my time these days. But I mean. I can kind of see things in charts and models because I built so many charts and models over my career now. I can kind of see things and I can see, okay, there's a weak point there. You know, that's really just a chart crime or that's that model is doing this. And I know that everything that guy just said is bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, you probably know. I mean, you know how it is. It's like it's there is a lot of bullshit out there. Is most of the work that you do at at, just generally is most of the work that people do at Ned Davis 
custom ordered from like a hedge fund or a client or are you guys doing something that you think is important and then pushing that out and whoever wants it, wants it? We had a strategy team and a custom research team. And so okay. the strategy, you know, I worked on the strategy team. You train up in the custom team. And so I did a little bit of the custom stuff for like hedge funds and stuff like that. But you have to be a more talented coder. Like I was good enough. Yeah. But like, the you know, the guys in CRS, like the partner I work with, Fernando, genius, he was at CRS. We met our, each other at NDR. Uh, he's out in San Francisco. And then he moved on from NDR, got a master's degree in machine learning, was doing data science out in uh, Silicon Valley. And so people like that yeah. are, and he was, but he was the best in CRS. And so people like that do CRS. People like me do more of the strategy stuff. And that's what I'm fit to and do. And then there's the secondary component to it, but it's really not secondary. It's maybe thought of as secondary, but the visual presentation is as important Huge. as the insights yeah. that you're generating from the numbers and like you look at the guys from Bespoke who I think like a lot of young researchers coming up trying to be entrepreneurial would look at, you know, what what they're doing or what they have done over the last 10 or so years. And it's like, oh, the shit has to look good. It has to make an impact the minute somebody glances at it. And, you know, their charts are their charts. Like when you see the the blue fade to green or whatever their color scheme is, like, the you know, it's from Bespoke. The, bra the branding of it yeah. is important. Yeah. Um, I think when I think when you think about like, what are we all doing with this information? Not everybody is trading on it immediately. A lot of people are using it to just have a better understanding of what's happening. For that more casual user, there, there's got to be a visual effect that comes along with the data. Yeah, I mean, so I want to give away all our secrets or whatever, but I mean— By the time you're done here, yeah, there will be nothing so left. So you're going to pump it all out of me. But, you know, that's something that I think it was Ed Hyman. I mean, he built a—, a ISI, I mean, like, you know, it really built ISI was the markups on the charts, you know, and I remember John, again, the guy who hired me into the business, he said to me, uh, and I'm an attorney, so I like to write, we start our reports out with all these quotes and, you know, all this stuff. And, I love your, yeah, I love the way you do that. And, okay, well, I appreciate that. And I, I like it, but not everyone likes it. And a lot of our clients don't have time for it. So the point is, you better be able to get hit, at least 70%. Hit page, hit page down. Don't right, exactly. It. it hit 70%. Get 70% of the story just from looking at the charts and the markups. And I think that's what, like, Ed Hyman learned, and that's why he became uh, really successful. Okay, so when did you start 314? When did you first uh when did you, like, uh, first go out on your own and, and found this thing? September 2020 is uh, when it started. You know, so many people have that same story. Yeah, like I mean— during, during the, the pandemic. The COVID origin story. Especially yeah. the— uh, especially anyone with an energy background. Yeah. And so, I mean, energy was left for dead. You know, that's what happened. With NDR was like, we don't want to have a dedicated commodity team anymore. Right. They, you know, let's just back up. Like, this wasn't Ned's call. Like, Ned and I were good friends and, like, worked out. We had a gym on site, and we worked out there all the time, and— uh, I work out also. Well, so. I, I see that. Yeah. I mean, you're both very, very. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, we don't have a gym on site. That's <laughs> the problem. You know, just a just a Bowflex machine in the office. That's right. right. That's um, right. Anyway, so but but Ned had was retiring. His right hand guy. So they were bought out by like a private equity company and stuff like that. So we. But I took it as an opportunity. I was you know 39 years old. So what? Do you, so you met you married. Uh, and divorced. Okay. So, so you didn't have to like clear that decision with anyone. You could just say, I'm doing this I'm thing. a free agent. Yeah. That's yeah. the beauty of being a free agent. So, so that makes a big difference. That's like one of those things where it's like, I know I could do this and I really don't have anyone to convince. I just have to kind of go for it. Yeah. I mean, I had a lot of things that lo lined up for me. We had been, uh, involved 
you know, I had been involved in a self storage, a couple of self storage properties that we fixed up through the real estate uh, boom and then sold off. Mm-hmm. And that helped with some of the, you know, cushion, some of the blow. And I could have gone a couple of different directions, but like, I just love this stuff. I've always wanted to do it my own way. And this was the opportunity, the timing lined up. So who are, uh, who are most of your clients right now? Uh, institutions. I mean, we have some individuals, high net worth individuals also, but it's mainly institutions, hedge funds, uh, large asset managers. Um, you know, you guys had Jeremy Schwartz on. Yeah. And he brought some of my charts with him. Yeah, he, was on he the likes show. your stuff. Yeah, Jeremy was one of my first clients and just a really cool guy. And people like that, I just really was, they supported us right at the very beginning. And like, you know, that was a hard time, you know, starting a business and you don't, it felt a little bit like throwing a party and wondering if anyone will show up, you know. Yeah. And, and so... <laughs> You know, but Jeremy showed up and Wisdom Tree and people like that kept showing up. And we started realizing we have something here. Dude, if you're doing good work, people will find it. And if Jeremy likes your stuff, then it's good. Yeah. Because he's not wasting his time with with anything other than, like, essential things. So that's great, man. Congratulations. So, so, yes, agreed. Um, Let's get into some of the stuff. So I was saying before, like, how often is the market up 4%? Well, I got it right here. Uh, so, so since we started talking, the market is Warren, while he says what he, he no, just found, shut up. I'm done. I want you to fact stop, check him. Stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do you got? Let's go. So since 1950, there have been 54, including today up 4% days. It's actually 53 up 54. Yeah. Up 54, uh, 54 days. That's 0.3% of all days, but the S and P 500 right now is up 5% as we speak. I don't know if it'll close there, but that's only happened 22 times, 0.12%. So the point is, there's been 18,342 trading days since 1950. 54 times the market was up 4%. Only 22 was up 5%, and today might be number 23. So what is moving the market today? We found out S&P's up 5.1% right now. So CPI, lower than expected. What was underneath the hook? Because I didn't get a chance to look at the numbers yet. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have not, we break the CPI down every month, uh, when it comes out and we publish today, but I can, I have a decent idea. So, you know, what we've seen is that basically, you know, we shelter, which has been the big driver and everybody's talking about it. Yeah, that's about a third, right. And then 40% of core. And so that's a big, in the thing is, and we did a lot of work on this is like, that's going to continue higher. And if you have, our view has been, so if you give us like one, what is your conviction call over the next year? One conviction call, CPI is going to decelerate rapidly over the next year, no matter what the Fed does from here. And that's, and there's a part of me that thinks that statement is just a, how much of a degree. That's a controversial statement. That statement holds true even if we don't have a recession. I think we're going lower for technical factors is really what it's all about. And so, you know, and if we get a recession or softening in demand, then obviously that's going to, you know, put even uh, more pressure on CPI. So that's our big base case. It's just a matter of how you get there. And that depend that dictates how you want to structure a portfolio. But under the hood today, I mean, shelter's going higher. There's nothing stopping that. So you got to throw that out. But cars and energy have been turning from a huge uh, boost to CPI early in the year to it's starting to fade. This yeah. is something we saw coming. And then um, what you're starting to see 
On top of that is this services, and this is what we've been looking at, Services X Shelter. Services X Shelter came in flat month over month, and year over year it fell by, or not, it went from 8.2% to like 7.6 or 5% or something like that. Right. And that to me, that's the key part that the Fed's really looking at, is this Services X Shelter. Um, and so, yeah, that's- what, what are the biggest components of services? Services is really shelter. You know, shelters in the service, but you know, okay, it's all but, rent but, stuff. But you take the rent out, then you're looking at health, healthcare, healthcare. And, and okay. healthcare was, for technical reasons, um, basically got derated today uh, because you basically look or health insurance specifically, but healthcare came in low, and that's because of a lot of technical factors. But they basically go back to the insurers and ask them how much earnings did you retain last year, and you know, basically that works with a lag. So they do it once a year, and it always happens around October. Of, of the end of the year. And then that persists for a year. And you can, the people who watch the CPI and break it down, they know that this is going to be a drag on CPI right. for the next year. So that's a big, big factor. Um, and, and that that's in the mix. But I mean, there's just like, you know, a lot of stuff. It's services. It's the service economy. Why does the Fed watch uh, services X shelter so closely? I mean, I think they're trying to, to map a piece of that CPI onto the labor economy. And so they want, they want to see, you know, and that's what we were starting to really look at that jolts stuff, which you, you guys saw. So our big thesis, just to, to back up for a second, is we think there are two big factors that are pushing and pulling market participants right now. Number one, you have improving data, like I said. That's our conviction call. And improving meaning softening. Softening inflation data. And, right. And that's going to provide the, the downside support the support for the market. And then what's going to put the ceiling on the market, in earnings. our view, is earnings. Yeah. Yes, you have deteriorating earnings versus um, improving data. And that's the fight that's going to – and I think the way that expresses itself is in this trading range. We're in. So we're, I think we're in a range-bound market for a little bit. All right. So let's get into some of the stuff. So we had 7.7% today. Markets are 5%. If you if you dropped an alien down from outer space or, or yourself from three years ago – and said, hey, there's going to be a CPI print of 7.7% and the market's going to be at 5%. You would say, what the f*** is going on? How the only question is, well, what was the last CPI yeah, print? Exactly. And that's, <laughs> and that's it. So what's going on right now, the market is ripping. We have this chart from Jim Bianco showing that inside the market today, the Goldman Sachs most shorted index is up 9.3%. So all of the trash, uh, all of the ARC names, the Pelotons of the world, the Shopify's, like anything that people were – we're short. Arc is, is up almost thirteen percent on the day. Is is blowing them out. Is blowing them out. So I've got I've got these these arc names. Uh, I think I spoke about this earlier. But Shopify up seventeen. Peloton up fifteen. Teladoc up fifteen. Uh, this is it. And so people, the shorts are getting cleared out. What's the Venn diagram look like of the Goldman Sachs most shorted index? One, one to one. And and the arc it's the same uh, thing. portfolio. It's the same thing. It's got to be right. It's the same thing. We're pretty damn close. At least it was. It was the same thing. Uh, so I think this idea. Listen. Uh, Maybe the historical data doesn't bear this out, but these technology are high duration stocks. That's it. That's it. Oh, for sure. I mean, and this is something I mean, having a line of sight on the energy sector for all the way back to 2019, like I saw this coming before even COVID was like the energy sector transitioned for the first time ever in the highest yielding sector in like April of 2019. Yeah. So this is way before COVID ever happened. And so what had happened is that this was clearly investors saying we want our money back faster energy became the short duration place. So when you had COVID hit and near-term economic activity got smashed and rates fell, that's why you saw all these 
long duration, big tech, no earnings type companies skyrocket and energy is in the dumps. And we've just had a reversal of that as right. rates have risen and economic activity has ramped. But energy has more going for it this year than just the fact that it's short duration and the dividends you can count on. It's you, You've got, you know, uh, elect, electricity supply issues all over the world, geopolitics. You also had a, a, just the buildup of an industry that hasn't invested in itself in a long time for good reason, obviously. Um, but there were a lot of factors that that helped that short duration story. You, you would agree? For sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this has been an area we've been pounding the table on all year. What do you tell people who are interested? They don't, they're underweight energy or don't really know the space. And they're looking at, I think the sector's up 65% this year. Yeah. Something like, what do you tell people typically happens after a year in which energy outperforms everything? Um, or is history not a good guide? Like, do you start, like, do you start buying ConocoPhillips and Chevron now, or do you chill out? Uh, you know, my feeling is, so there are two ways to answer that question. Number one is- Answer it the right way, the, though. Well, okay, here's the out, the, the guy in the street says, well, you, do I buy or sell energy right yeah, now? Like, and I'm like, I don't know. I mean, probably buy it, but I'm not, not very excited about it at this level. And then you have a more sophisticated answer, and that's, I have a portfolio, and I need to add something to it. I have stocks and bonds. Now I'm excited. And I think you should add energy and be overweight energy in a balanced portfolio okay. because it's doing things that nothing else in the market is doing. Right. So now. it's not a yes or no energy. It's a how much energy in relation to everything else that you're invested in. Correct. I think that's really to me, and that's like kind of the quant way of looking at it is, you know, what what is this thing doing in your portfolio? Is it just giving you beta to a commodity that's crazy volatile and that could be down because the, the, the Russia-Ukraine crisis cools off? You know, if that's all you're getting, then it's not so interesting. But if it's doing something that's diversifying all the other things, like nothing else in your portfolio, right. then that's a great investment. And energy this year, for the first time ever, any sector was trading negative to every other sector on a pairwise basis and bonds. Never seen that. Inversely before. correlated to it, every other sector in the market. and bonds. So we've had times where a few years ago, utilities was negatively correlated to every other sector, but it was still positively correlated to bonds. Energy negatively correlated to everything. You just can't find a diversifying asset in this world. Like Somebody that. was telling me that um, the Bitcoin versus gold thing is the wrong way to think. They're saying oil is doing what gold is supposed to do. Not Bitcoin's not doing it. The, the real thing that's giving you that diversification and that commodity is oil. And what's really even more interesting about that is that's happening against the backdrop of a U.S. dollar that until today, I think has been going up like every week. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, well, I think this cycle, the dollar being strong hurts a foreign oil demand. So right. it does it does have an impact on oil. But I do think this cycle that there's going to be more of a positive correlation between dollar and oil just because when the dollar moves, it's going to, just like we saw today, what did the dollar move off of? The, the thought that the Fed may pivot. And so if the Fed's going to pivot then you can't – Fed's not going to pivot when oil's at 130 bucks a barrel or 150 bucks a barrel. And so there's a good chance that you're going to see this co-movement between the dollar and oil. Okay. And so, yeah, that's – it's a it's a weird cycle in that way. So today was like historic for that. The two-year Treasury yield uh, is on pace for its biggest one-day decline since September 2008. Dollar-yen set for biggest one-day decline since 2016. Like this is this was a – this is an important day in the markets. This will show up yeah. in the chart. If you look at bonds or the dollar, this will show up in charts for a long time. 
For sure. I mean, and there's those always those stats. If you miss the best whatever days in the market, over, yeah. you know, that's just this is the whole exact reason why you don't get shaken out of positions. You know, it's like these are the days you need in order to make your 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 goals. Right. So so when you uh what where do you want to go next? Do you want to do this thing about the reversals? Nah, let's not we don't skip that. Yeah, let's skip that. Let's just get into, into, into Warren's charts because we could spend four hours on these. So maybe we'll just start here. Nate, you were looking at a chart of the S&P 500 and the trailing 12-month earnings drawdowns. Um, so we're looking at year-over-year growth of earnings. And you're basically saying in one of the pieces that you put out that bad things start to happen. And we have more charts, uh, we have more of your charts. Bad things start to happen when earnings go to zero year-over-year. Correct. And so, so 0% growth year over year. So Nate had, uh, I don't know why I call you Nate. Uh, who's Nate? <laughs> I don't know. Who the hell's Nate? Nate Dog. He was part of no, me and Warren. You were thinking like Ned Warren Davis because we did. No, maybe it was Nate and Warren. Like maybe it was oh, Nate Dog and Warren G. Oh, shit. All right. Can I be Snoop? <laughs> um, but you had this crazy <laughs> stat that 10 out of the 11 times that earnings growth went negative year over year, they went down 10% year over year. Correct. Yeah, eleven out of sixteen. Eleven times. out of sixteen. Every, right. Sixteen times we've seen trailing earnings hit that zero mark, and then they accelerate almost immediately to ten negative ten percent. So you go. So like you know, what are we at on trailing twelve months right now? It's like two hundred and six bucks uh, yeah. a share. And so we go forward. If you if you don't if you go if, if your growth falls flat, and I think at the end of the year we're gonna be at two twenty two. So like then you look at two twenty twenty three estimates, which are somewhere in the two thirties right now, and falling right. And those estimates get down to two twenty two, then you're talking we're in this neighborhood where we're starting to see flatline earnings growth. And when that happens, you see an immediate acceleration down to at least ten percent. You know why I think that is? Um, I forget who we had on here. Maybe Nicholas. And we were talking about like companies are not going to preemptively do layoffs. They do layoffs after things have already gotten bad. What do they call it? Warehousing talent or something like that? Yeah. Well, like this idea that like companies are going to say, I think there's a recession next year. Therefore, you're fired. That's like not how it actually works. What actually happens is profits get or in the form of earnings get crimped, which then means people, the shareholders are making less money. The executives who own shares are making less money. There's less profit to be distributed, and that's what generates the layoffs. And that's why when earnings go flat from one year to the next, you get that acceleration because then all of a sudden, oh, things are – everyone agrees things are bad. But what's weird about this period of time is, at least in technology, these companies are – other than Meta, these companies are still kind of growing, but they're firing anyway. Like they are working off the excess of, of their own hiring before there's an actual profit recession. Yeah. Or an earnings recession. Yeah, no, I, I think there's there's certainly something to that. The other thing we found, which kind of it all gets when you're trying to piece it, parse it out in the data, the thing we found out of those eleven cases where earnings went from zero and then immediately down to at least ten percent contraction. The recessions. And so every time, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the other ones, the five that are remaining out of the sixteen cases of hitting uh, zero earnings with four out of those five, no recession associated with them. So and what's so, an example? What's an example of that? Uh, let me pull my chart up. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking 20, I think it was 20, like 2010 maybe was one, okay. uh, but that was actually coming out of 2009. So let me that's like, a hang, that's like a hangover from, from that period. Yeah. Uh, I might have the chart. You might be able to put it up there. Uh, uh, which one is this? Maybe we'll- it's that bar chart, the horizontal bar. Uh, chart. We'll, we'll come back to that. Cause I think it's, I think it's better in here somewhere, but let's talk about the evolution of S and P 500 estimates for, so you did some really fascinating show with analyst estimates that I want to get to, but what are we saying here in this, in this chart? 
Uh, so, oh, sorry, it's not on the screen. Uh, John's John's a one man show today. So we're looking at this: the evolution of S and P five hundred estimates for next. For, there we go. Yeah, so that's how twenty the end of uh, next year. So that's you know fiscal year twenty twenty three estimates have evolved through the calendar year, and we're just plotting every calendar year, and so you can see how these estimates evolve through the years. And so we started the you know, obviously you're looking at twenty twenty one. That's end twenty twenty two estimates in the red line. Those were just constantly going higher throughout 2021. So earn, future earnings were getting priced higher and higher and higher through 2021. And you can see that 2022 started out pretty positive too. That's the blue line. And yeah. we've started contracting. But now. wait, Warren, were, were analysts drunk too in 2021 like the rest of us? Shouldn't they have been the sober ones in the room? <laughs> well, I mean, in 2021, they pretty much nailed it, right? I mean, they've we haven't missed earnings this year. So like 2022 earnings, we haven't really missed it. Yeah, this badly. isn't right. And they and they do seem to be taking their estimates down. But wait, hang on. This is important. So, th so these numbers are indexed to 100. Yes. 2021 was the highest pace of what? Estimates? Of how estimates, the end of the 2022 estimate grew over the year. So- Starting in uh, January 2021 to the end of the of 2021, the uh, the estimates for next year grew by like 20% almost. Yeah, so, and you could see why you had stock market bubble, you had a housing bubble, you had all these things working really well simultaneously. Got a vaccine in the in this in the spring. Yeah, and then you had travel explode. And you had like stimulus all over the place. Stimulus Fiscal everywhere. Stimulus, you could un you could un you could understand. So is your take that uh, Wall Street is still uh, too slow at taking down expectations, or do you think they're at the right pace we're for twenty twenty three? I don't think they're too far off. I mean, uh, I guess we're we're in two thirty. I think you need to mark it down probably another. Uh, we we're at two hundred and ten dollars a share. That's what. what if we have no recession. Uh, so, so to me, it feels weird. It feels really binary. It feels like if we have a recession, earnings could be 200. And if we don't, it could be 230. And that's such a huge gap. Uh, I don't know what that is percentage-wise, but, but – It's almost 15%, right? Yeah. 15%. Lizanne Saunders tweeted today, the drop in the S&P 500 blended forward 12-month EPS, not yet anywhere close to recessionary. It's, it's at 230. If you look at like – Forward EPS drawdowns, I mean, it's nowhere. No, I mean, that's the whole point is like fiscal year 2023 earnings growth is estimated to be 6.8%. And we break it down by sector. I mean, they, the analysts have consumer discretionary at 28% growth next year. And consumer discretionary is contracting already this year. And so you could go through there and see like there's some stuff that doesn't make sense. Margins are supposed to hit a new all-time high next year when you go through the earnings, right? Uh, margins are at like 10%. There, if you how take, could that possibly happen? It does, I don't think it's going to happen. I think that, uh, and when you, and now like, again, back to what you said, I'll try not to have a bias. Yeah. Right. So if the data says that that's, <laughs> if the data says that, that that's possible, I, I guess that's I'll, you, Josh is, you have very strong ideas because it, it really <laughs> seems impossible to me. It re, like, what is the story? That I know we're talking about data versus story, but honestly, what if Powell's the goat? What if he pulls off the soft landing? I think even that if, even if that doesn't mean it costs le uh, materially less to run your business, and that's what margins are. Margins are at all time highs. I understand. I understand, but I also think now what you're hearing from companies directly right, right, is that they right. look at what Disney did. Disney blew up this week, and the reason why is they reached the point where they couldn't charge any more money. That that can't affect one company, like. That, that has to affect a, a company size Disney. That has to be something that becomes more widespread. That's all I'm saying. Getting back to Warren's thing about analyst estimates, 
Let's throw up this next chart, John, please. This is amazing. So you're showing the actual future 12-month EPS shifted by 12 months and the analyst estimates. And if I'm looking at this right, are we saying that analysts are following earnings or, or what exactly is going on here? Yeah, analysts are, are late marking their earnings down and they're or they're late marking their earnings up coming out of a recession. So the Which the is big, not that necessarily their fault. How would it be any other way? Where the, where do you think they're getting the guidance from? They're getting it from the companies themselves. You, so. the, com- <laughs> the companies and then the thing you start to realize when we talk about those cases where earnings decelerate from zero to 10 really quick. To negative 10, yeah. To yeah. negative 10. The, the, the way you stop that decline is through monetary stimulus. So the Fed always, you go, we have another chart in there. It's like we're looking at Fed funds rate around those times where we go to 0% on earnings. It's recessions. And yeah, Fed funds rate is starting to come down. I mean, it's that typical business cycle. So you're starting to get counter-cyclical policy. That's what sets the the bottom, you know. And analysts okay. are slow. They're slow at the turn. They're always, you know, it's, it's what is the old, it's better to fail uh, mm-hmm. with consensus. I mean, like, that's what the whole. The better whole to fail is. conventionally than succeed on, conve- or then, I don't know. How so could, you know how to, could yeah. we have, could we have. Career risk. Rates not go, like, can we have a situation where the Fed doesn't have to cut rates because things aren't blowing up, where the mortgage mortgages get back down to six, you know, a, a reasonable number that people could afford houses and there's more activity and we just glide on and, and there is a soft landing? I think uh, that's, well, the, that's the 90s. Yeah, I think mortgages have to come down a decent amount though, to, 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 to make to that the fives. Work. I think you, so we're at. I, th- in, I think they fell to six, seven today. It was really? like a, today was a crazy f-ing drop. Yeah. Uh, hang on, I have, I have the number right here. Uh, well, the thing we, we did the work on, uh, what is the, the real cost, the average over time, the real cost of housing? Uh, mortgage plus house payment, the, the, your total house payment. And we're at like 2,800 bucks in real terms right now. And if you go back to the 90s, the top was always like 24 to 2,200. And you really don't go above that. There's really not a way for, in real terms, for the consumer to, to stomach anything more than that for a sustained period of time. So the so. average 30-year fell to 6.67% today, which is a massive decrease, like massive. Yeah, so they, they said September. It was 7.3 the other day. They said September contract signings were down Zero. 29% year over year from September 21, yeah. which is a really big freeze in the housing market. And then they said at prevailing mortgage rates, the average new home bought this year or the average mortgage this year equates to like $1,100 a month, which, you know, in, in Wall Street terms, you know, you'd be like, all right, yeah, that makes sense. But like, that's that's a really big difference oh, wait, Warren, from last year. Where are you on, on estimates for next year? 210. Okay, so two ten. Let's just assume that rates stay at whatever four to five percent. Which, you know, if you just slap fifteen multiple on it, that's thirty one fifty. Obviously, there's a huge range, right? Like sixteen is thirty three sixty, seventeen is thirty seven thirty five seventy. Who knows where you know what multiple we're going to trade? Yeah, up. I think that's where we're at. It's like somewhere around thirty eight hundred is fair value on this market. Fair value. And the other thing, what do you mean found, by fair value? I mean we what we do is we take the an interest rate in a mul- and basically pick the multiple based off of interest rates. You know, and we can take we we've done this off of forward trailing and cape ratio. We'll throw the cape ratio out for a minute. Forward and trailing, I think about thirty eight hundred is fair value. That's what we found now. The market doesn't bottom typically until you get a 15 or 20% discount to fair value using rates and multiples. Did we get there? No, we never got there. So we got to the lowest 3,500. Now we're at 3,940. Yeah. The market doesn't bottom at average anything. The pendulum always swings too far. Yeah, that's exactly. You can always, you can, if you go through all the cases, it's, there's, there are some where we could say, okay, this looks like some case in the nineties, but for the most part, you need to 
you need to mark that so, discount. So barring any exogenous event that we can't predict, if, and I mean, that's a big bar, but if we're just looking at uh, what we think rates will be next year, like the range, and we think about what a typical multiple for a bottoming stock market might be, um, and maybe mild recession or maybe just flat to, to very little growth. But I think you got to throw all that stuff out of where markets typically bottom on multiples. Why? Well, first of all, this is so extraordinary, the, 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 totally the situation agree. that we're living through. I totally agree. So I don't think that you could look to history. And I also do think that like the cash cows that are the giant tech names – like just fundamentally change what the multiple should be. I don't think that Apple should ever trade at eight times an eight times earnings multiple, yeah. or, or that the overall market should. Well, eight is ex- eight is extreme. But Fine, but ten. Yeah, I just I don't. I mean, no, Facebook's trading at ten times earnings. That kind of makes sense. But for the market to get there, things would have to get. I think it could. I was gonna say the thing. The thing about those tech giants, though, is part of their part of their ability to keep making money is that aura of invincibility and companies don't even step up to challenge. Like nobody's seriously challenging Apple in most of its businesses, but like when, if, if, and when Apple ever trades at a 10 multiple, it's over. That's precisely the time you don't want to own it. Like, because that means that there's something seriously wrong happening and things have dramatically changed. And that's what makes investing so hard. I mean, just, yeah. you know, like that, like think about what it would take for that stock to trade at a sub, you know, market multiple. They would have to get into the metaverse. And to your, to your point, exactly, just start incinerating <laughs> money. To your point, though, the reason that multiples are as high as they are, when we, we went back, because this is like something we had looked at and we're like, look, if multiples revert back to some historic norm, I mean, you slap a, a normal multiple on the next year's sales estimates and you're at $175, right. $80 right. a share. And then you start doing right. the multiples on – and all of a sudden you get into these really bearish – this really bearish place. The reason multiples are high is because tech and communication services, those two sectors, those are the only two sectors who have grown t- uh, margins over the last 10 years. They account for 100 percent of the market's mar- margin expansion. That's interesting. He has, and, you have a great chart on that. Yeah. And, and when you look at – the downturns of previous margin expansions. So go to 2000 tech bubble. Again, it was it was tech in the financial sector that grew margins, only two sectors leading into that. And then we saw margins collapse during the, the deflation of the tech bubble. And those, it was tech that did all the work. It wasn't the whole mar- market that lost their margins there. And same with 2008. That was the financial sector story and a little bit of energy. Those two sectors pump margins up and it was obviously financial sector just saw their margins go, you know. Yeah. But aren't, aren't margins on, on, on Google and Apple and Microsoft just extraordinarily high relative to history and what can make those margins come down to historic norms? It's hard to see it. Your regulation oh, maybe? I, I, yeah, I mean, there's, that's, this is crazy. So we're looking at the percent of index margin decline by sector. This is during the dot-com bubble. It was, it was 100% tech. Is that right, Warren? Yep. More than 100%? Yep. Tech so in. when you see financials negative 5%, that means they had a positive contribution to margins overall? Correct. Financials was- That's, were, a, that's really interesting too. Yeah. And well, you got to think about like, we had the handoff from the finan- from the tech bubble into the financial crisis, really. It started really then, if you look at the margin chart, but financial margins really started creeping up at that point. And right. then they, they kept expanding all the way into 2007, 2008. Well, I think we, we kind of know- what would be behind tech and communications margins collapsing? They're just it, – it doesn't seem highly likely that that's going to happen quickly. But – No, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what happens. How does Apple's margins collapse? And I'm not being facetious. Like I, I don't know. 
Well, if they have if if they have uh, Apple's a tough case, but if they have trouble politically in China, that's a really big that's a really big issue. If they have trouble getting semiconductors out of Taiwan because something geopolitical happens, yeah, if that's to, a really if they tough, have to start manufacturing their own shit. The, for the sure. two mo- the two most important strategically important companies on earth. Uh, one is one is Foxconn. Apple can't live without Foxconn. Like if you actually look at their business, if Foxconn were to say, "Hey, we're closed for a week," like Apple's quarter is blown. So I'm not that I am predicting that. The second most important company is Taiwan Semi. The entirety of the Nasdaq cannot function if Taiwan Semi has an issue. Both of those uh, companies are in a geopolitical hotbed of issues. So that would be how that happens. On the uh, in terms of the rest of those giant companies, it's all advertising. Yeah. Google's business is 97% advertising. Uh, I don't know if anybody noticed, but um, Disney and Netflix are about to launch two competing platforms for ad dollars that arguably have the ability to reach as many people as Google. Oh, Galloway has this great chart. Uh, he did a post last week looking at the percent of, of global spend on advertising is pretty constant throughout history. It's like 1.3%. And it's just who has the pie? Who's eating to the pie? Because the number the number doesn't really change, right? There's no there's no reason why you would expect most companies to all of a sudden triple their ad budgets all at once or cut it by eighty. So obviously it's you know there's there's cyclicality there. They'll dial it up or down, but that's that's but generally it, but the number. That's where the earnings coming from, right? For, for the fan group, it's 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 uh, it's cloud computing and it's ad- advertising. It's really not that much more complicated. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean that's if you're going to get bearish on margins, the big takeaway I had is if you're going to get bearish on margins for the S and P five hundred, then you got to get bearish on big tech margins. You know, which I think people. I mean, did we just do that? I think people uh, really maybe, are. Maybe yeah. I mean yeah. it, we have. Yeah. That's the big argument is this: these companies have been stress tested through you know a, a, a full cycle. You know, right. As a you know, and so. So, so I guess the the question going forward, and, and just to see like, so Amazon got cut in half. Uh, I don't know if Google got cut in half. Did Google fall forty five percent? Close enough. Microsoft fell thirty plus. Like Apple didn't really, but 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 we're doing it now. Facebook's down seventy plus. Net, Netflix as well. Um, let's talk about. So so let's just assume that this one print at 7.7 is hopefully a you know hopefully the beginning of a trend of numbers starting to come down and so we could stop obsessing over the CPI and then start to worry about oh shit why are why are prices coming down and maybe it's because there is a little bit of demand destruction and then obviously that's you know earnings mm-hmm. so what is the transition going to look like from talking about worrying about inflation to earnings. What's that t- you know, push and pull going to be? I, I think it, 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 it- Hang on, John, can you throw that up? Yeah. So explain, I, explain, like for the people that aren't seeing the chart, explain what you're showing here. Sure. Yeah. And so this is kind of our, we, we did a little series called, we, we call it the quiet battle. And, and it's just the quiet battle and the, under the surface of the market in our view, like we said, or like I said, is the earnings versus inflation data. And I think it expresses itself as a trading range. So we've basically carved out this range. Let's call it 3,600 to 4,000 in the market. And we're going to trade up to that 4,000 on the strength of this new inflation data. And I think we get up to 4,000 or so and people look around and they say, what's the valuation? What's mm. the upside to buying? They say, okay, I'm not worried about inflation anymore. Now but why am I earnings? paying 23 times earnings? By the again? way, it's 39.50. We're we're basically there. Exactly. That's what I mean. Uh, today we just we got there. We took the elevator. It's amazing how that <laughs> to happens. The top. Yeah. it's not even a process the Russell, anymore. The Russell's up six percent. Nasdaq's up seven. I mean, Arc's up fourteen. Even the, the the gap just takes the whole trade away, right? Yeah. Yeah. There you had to be in. You had to see this in the data. You had to basically have enough guts 
in your call on CPI to yeah. be in the market today. Which is why my macro alerts followers uh, <laughs> are, are sending me love letters today because I put that out yesterday, not to brag. Um, <laughs> but then the downside is the earnings outlook deteriorating. And that's like, that's that push and pull that you, you're describing. Yeah. So you get to 4,000, call it whatever. It could be 4,100, 42, wherever you topped out. You know, but you get there and then you have to start reckoning with like, am I getting enough value to put money to work here? And so new money dries up. I think this expresses itself as a range. So it's, this it's, range, 3,600 to 4,100, let's say. If that if that's the range that we had to live in as the as the Fed winds up its normalization – and we we start getting earnings reports. Let's say we we get Q4 earnings in February, right? Okay. So if we have to live in that range, I feel like most investors would take that deal after this year. Yeah. What it tells me is, especially when you get to the top of this range, that bonds are a much better deal. You know, bonds you know, are a great deal right you, now. I mean, you have real rates across the curve. You have p- potentially a softening economic backdrop, you know, you, you th- if you say what I say at the beginning of this is that we have rapid deceleration in the CPI coming, you put all this stuff together. Now we have gridlock in Congress. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, there's no fiscal stimulus coming. So, so as long as I can get a 3% plus yield on, uh, or, or close to 4% yield on a bond, even if, even if uh, yields pull back further, that's still a better deal versus the market. Unless we're at the bottom of that range, you're saying. That's, what I li- that's how I like it, yeah. And I mean, okay, here's the that's thing. Interesting. When you factor interest rates into your valuation work, you're going to – and we we did put money. So we went bearish through the beginning of the year, and we said strategically st- out of the market, just kind of like our own trading kind of, you know, whatever. And then on June 16th, at the when we hit like 36.50, we said put about a quarter of your money back into the market. And that's where we're at. We haven't put any more money to work. We haven't had the conviction to do that yet. But when you when you – if you get the backup, and part of the reason is we had rates rising as we hit those lows. So if rates can kind of t- start to fall as you come back down to those lows and the f- focus is on earnings, you do, I think, set the, the ground for a better valuation in that lower end of the range. And so that's how you end up here. But we're, we're hearing things from companies that are like, again, it's been mixed, mixed messages all year. Obviously, the housing sector is a recession. Tech is acting like it's a depression. Elon put out a note today and he says the economic picture ahead is dire. Well, yeah, for Twitter, the economic picture is dire. But is that really representative of the economy? No, I don't think so. I mean, that's the other thing I've, I know you all have talked about it on the podcast. And it's something we've been pounding the table on all the way back to last year is just the money is sitting in people's check, the checkable deposits chart, you know, that excess savings everyone's talking about. Yeah, We haven't ever seen a fiscal stimulus like we saw coming out of this. And I think it's like a new social experiment. And, and you have to kind of take that into account when you start getting all these extremely bearish, you know, uh, conclusions on the economy. I, I mean, I think housing is frozen because of the affordability thing we're talking about, and that's a big part of the economy. But consumer spending, I mean, it's going to be a tough nut to crack because everybody's tough sitting. to get that. To how do you stop people? To, how do you get people to stop spending? You fire. I mean, you one fire thing, them, and even then, you're not sure. Well, one way you do it is you make the two year go up to almost five percent, and you tell people, "Hey, do you want to you want to just lock in at two years for you get a five percent real rate on that?" And you think consumers behave in response to that? I mean, I the, don't. The, the top end, I think you do. I mean, yeah, it's the, a the, the top one percent probably know what interest rates are. But they, but they, but they spend what they spend. I don't think their spending will change. Uh, so the top one percent might be tempted to to slow down their spending, but it probably won't be because of where rates are. But I think interest rates and stock market are secondary to to employment. If you have a job, you're you're good. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, and you so you have to crack the, the labor market somewhat. Yeah. I mean, you need to slow the entire economy down. But I, I do think there's like again, an opportunity cost for once in our in the yes. last modern history, which is great. You can actually get you know, there's a real place to park money. And I agree. That's such a that's such a huge development, and uh, it happened quick. Well, I my what my advisors were telling me the other day. Our this is like our job is finally like not really difficult, like not impossible in terms of like forward returns, getting plans to actually work. Yeah. Getting four plus percent on bonds like makes the financial plans a lot healthier than when the ten years at sixty basis points. Right. Like obviously. Yeah. Let's let's uh let's go to this S and P drawdowns versus earnings per share drawdowns. What are we what are we seeing here, Warren? Which which chart is this here? Uh, wrong. Oh, my bad. Wrong, wrong chart, John. We're looking at your chart, Warren, of S and P 500 returns versus EPS drawdowns. And the only time that we've oh. experienced something like this before, again, we're plotting the S and P 500 year over year change versus earnings per share drawdowns, which they're not, they're not drawing down. They're, <laughs> they're basically close to all time highs. The only other time was 1974. Yeah. I, we, I got this idea actually from one of your charts. Hell yeah. You had, you had like a, it was like the drawdown versus unemployment. I think yes, that yes, was yes, an yes. awesome chart. Thank you. So, so you're saying we have never had an S and P drawdown. This is uh minus 25% with earnings, yes. not pulling back with earning, with earnings, uh, not drawing down at all. Right. That's, ex- that's the point. But is maybe it? we're just getting faster and we're already pricing in next year's earnings drawdown. Could that be the reason? I think it's possible, but the fact is that, you know, when we, we did that in the 70s a lot, because I okay. think it's a, when, inter, when inflation enters the picture, you actually see this weird behavior where stock returns and earnings for a little while back in the 70s and stuff, they moved counter to each other. And so you could have that, but I think that the most simple explanation is that we are just really overvalued. And so we, we've had multiple compression. This is all of the 70s earnings were fine because the price of everything kept going up. So in nominal terms, companies were making more money. Yeah. It's just that, you know, but it, the, it wasn't good for the consumer. The difference here, though, is that you look at that the far left dot, the in 1974, the, the big bottom in 74, September 74, uh, the PE multiple there, we were down 40%. E- EPS hadn't drawn down though. Yeah. So EPS not in a drawdown, but the stock market is down 40%, but PE ratio is about eight, eight times. And that right was there. 100% the effect of, of interest rates going up. Did oil, did, I'm sorry, did earnings eventually collapse? They did. It was they, that case. And this was how the, the 80, 70s and 80s turns out. We have another chart. I didn't send it to you, but it's looking at inter, the returns versus earnings. And pre-2000, really, you saw them move against each other. So the market would lead earnings down, and then the earnings would collapse, but the market would be, have less downside. And that was the, the pattern in the 70s and 80s. So th- we obviously don't know why stocks are falling. Is it in response that stocks are looking ahead to lower earnings? Probably a combination of that. Um, or is it just working off all of the excess of stocks being valued at whatever multiple when interest rates were 0%, and now they're just readjusting to a normal multiple? I think it, I think they were really overvalued and coming into the year. I mean, you, you're we're, it was outside of the tech bubble, we we're the most overvalued we could be, and it was a result of interest rates. I mean, if you do run those little linear regressions, you see it in the data. And so, yeah, I see this. We have a sixty-five percent multiple compression from the beginning of twenty twenty. I think you go back to the beginning of twenty twenty-one. Even when we were having a good year last year, it was still a multiple compression because earnings were growing and stuff like that. So, we've had multiples compress this whole time, and so I look at this as. I think the multiple compression phase of this rally of this sell-off is over, and now it's all about goes back to our, our conversation. Risk, risk to earnings. Earnings exactly. So you're talking about a flashing red uh, light for consumer discretionary earnings, 
and you have a chart here about how that actually leads the the S and P. Um, can you talk talk a little bit about how how uh, investors should think about that? Because so many of the indicators we talk about are lagging indicators, and this is one of those ones that gives you a little bit of a peek around the corner. Yeah, and so this we, we this look is it at, right. Yeah, that's great. This is a great chart. I really love this. We like to look at just what's going on in the in the sector level, and you know, obviously, it's a consumer-driven economy, and so you know, this goes back to what we we're talking about. And so, typically, what you see is the consumer sector earnings they lead down the broad market earnings, and we are now there are a few sectors that are uh, have negative earnings, and consumer sector is negative. Now, the counterpoint to that is that we had a lot of stocks like Amazon that were over earning during the pandemic. So earnings have come down, and this is it's just normalized more. versus collapse. Right. Yeah, how much yeah. of this is Amazon? Big part of it. Yeah. Well, it's big. Part Amazon's of it. what fourteen percent of consumer discretionary. It no, sounds more. right. More. Yeah. It's think, bigger. Yeah, it's, it's, it I think, bigger. Well, at least in XLY, Amazon and Tesla were like forty something percent. I think. Oh, that's right. Tesla is in consumer discretionary. Were they forty nine? There was an absurd number. But either way, but but what else is in here? Home Depot, stuff like that. Um, McDonald's. Yes, home builders are Tar also uh, in Target there. is home a big one in this. Yeah. I think the hotel chains. Yep. It all comes down to spend, consumer spending, but then it all comes back to labor. Like I, I think so long, I don't think people's home prices matter as much as we maybe thought. If you have a job, you're spending money. Yeah. I mean, the, the one thing I would say about that though is we, another chart, I think I gave it to you all. I don't know if it's in there or not, but it was, it's household net worth versus uh, PCE. And we, I did not include that. If you lag household net worth uh, by two quarters, it le it actually lines up with PC. So it's basically this this wealth effect it takes a couple quarters to flow into the economy. Yeah. And so you know, yeah, we've we've seen stock prices come down, we've seen bond prices come down, we've seen house prices come down, but we still haven't seen that full effect, that negative wealth effect that comes through into the the consumer. So you know, yeah, no, I buy, I buy that. But the other thing we haven't seen is a two and a half trillion dollars in stimulus or whatever it is. Right. And like people's it's, honestly, it's like if you add up the Fed and the Treasury, it's like nine trillion. So, so people's people's balance sheets have never been better. Corporations balance sheets have never been better. And I think uh, there was a study recently that like one fourth of the stimulus is has been spent. And I'm sure it's you know closer to half now, but people are still OK. I totally agree. I think the big the, the one I, I, I've never been an economic doomer in this cycle. Like my, my big pushback on everybody has been like, let's look at the, let's look at what the, this, the reverberations of the stimulus are. But I also think that the transmission mechanism in this cycle for the Fed, Housing. it's all going to go through financial conditions and financial yeah. conditions is the fancy way of saying stock prices. What we've done is we looked at stock prices, credit spreads, stock prices lead credit spreads. They lead high yield spreads, which then lead investment yeah. grade spreads. So you start knocking, if, if stock prices go up, if you start- So isn't a day like today counterproductive? I mean, they sent out uh, uh, Mester to give a speech and she's basically like- Chill out. <laughs> she's like, sell, sell, sell. No, she, I mean, literally she's like, we're not going to stop. No, but, but, here's, and but here's the thing. Usually falling home prices, falling asset prices lead, bleeds into the real economy. And I'm just saying, what if it doesn't this time? I, yeah, I mean, it would be, I guess, a first I know, time I, for that. But I know it would be, it, it would be, it would be, the it, abs it absolutely is. But it, my, my, my point is, you could see stock prices decline, and if that doesn't get you fired, you're going to continue to spend, even if your home price goes down, even if your 401k comes down. I know it sounds ridiculous, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not pounding the table. I'm just saying it's possible. Uh, this is, this is from uh, John Ehrlichman. Uh, recent layoffs, like in the last couple of weeks. Seagate, 8%. When I say 8%, understand these are companies with thousands and thousands of employees. 
uh, DocuSign, 9%. Netflix, Shopify, 10%. Yeah, we know, we know. Twilio, uh, Meta, Redfin, Lyft, Stripe, Patreon, Coinbase, Open Door, Flipboard, right, counterpoint, Intel, counterpoint. Snap. So these these, I know, I know, I know. Sam tweeted that tech is 2% of the labor force. I understand, but these so are the highest earning people I'm, in the economy. There's a tech recession, for sure. Big time. For sure. But but these are the when when Meta says we're laying off thirteen percent eleven percent of employees, mm-hmm. these people make a million dollars a year. Like if you throw in like uh, total comp, like these are not these are the consumers. There's not a lot of them, but but if you were to stack a typical consumer, a few of those on top of each other. Then these numbers are understating the amount of layoffs that oh, yeah? are on the way. Counterpoint: stocks are ripping it to the close. <laughs> I know that. S and P's up five and a half percent. Holy shit! Yeah, that's uh, but that's the Fed's transmission mechanism: is to calm down the wealth effect, make it harder to borrow money, make it harder to uh, finance, you know, uh, future growth, and just generally caution people. But my point is: can you undo all, all of that with a ten percent rally in the stock market? I think to a, no. yeah, you I think? think you can undo a lot of it because they're looking at financial conditions until. So here's my thing, and this is why I go back to the range. I mean, maybe I'm just like going to sound like a broken record here, but I don't think you can get out of this range until you kind of like see the whites of the of in disinflation's eyes. Seven percent is not the whites. Correct. No, it's I'm not with here. You, babe. I'm we're, with you. we're start. This is the right move down the path, but this this thing's going to fade out. But let me ask you this other thing. So let's say we get a 10% rally in the queues, 15%, God forbid. They're loosening the financial (laughs) conditions. Stop. No, but are are all of the wheels that have been put in motion over the past two weeks, does Medisay actually come back? No. No, you're right. These companies are still going to lay off despite what their stock price is doing. And that's the funny part about 2023 earnings. Because what if companies have gotten too cautious, lay off too many people, revenues stay high, then all of a sudden they start over-earning again. <laughs> no, I'm just saying like that li- that's literally a thing that does happen when you come out of recessions. Yep. There's a – like think about uh, 2003. You had two brutal years for the economy plus 9-11. Just you know, throw that right in the, in the middle. And then in 03, you had this huge stock market rally, but it wasn't a fake multiple-driven rally. You had very lean companies uh, that got their growth back and had lower expenses. Like that is kind of like what happens, right? Yeah. And I mean, and you're kind of, both y'all are kind of describing a soft landing. I mean, like what you're starting to so do is- So complacent. Put it, like, Mike is more complacent than I am. I'm it's just a, well, no, no, I'm no just, I think that that's great. I'm because just, no I'm one's just ever asking, scoffs at you. I'm just, you I'm, he said, that's great for you. Yeah. That's great. It's, <laughs> it's great that you think I that. love that for you. No, I'm just talking out loud. I don't, I, I don't really feel strongly. I'm just asking questions. Who the hell knows? No, I actually think that the probability of a soft landing is a lot higher than the average investor thinks. What do you think is the probability? 40%. Oh, wow. I'll take 40. Yeah. I think it's like, you know, it's on the table. If that's that that's the kind of hope that's going to, you know, fuel, you know, the, that last buyer at the at the top of that range for a little bit, you know. Yeah. Um do you seasonality get into your work at all? A little bit. I'm a little skeptical of you're it. You're not like a, you, like you're not looking at technicals or We that. look at technicals. You do? We, I mean, we don't it depends on like we use whatever we need to in the toolbox. So like we do but it's quant technicals. So like if we have We'll look at something and see, does this work? Like, for instance, we think if you look at the S&P 500, 
we're going to, we say 4,000 is the top of the range. If you look at like the top, the, the, the top of the range in mid August, we had a VIX of like 19.5, right? Mm. Like 20, I don't know where we're at this moment, but it's like 23. It's today. collapsed 22, 23. Okay. So I think what you see is, a, and if you look at, you line the VIX up with your tops and bottoms during this, like it works perfectly. Range, yeah, yeah. I think you get back to like a 19 on the VIX or so. And that's going to be, you know, your place where you're like, okay, if you're, Trying to be cute, then take some chips off the table. Josh is really cute. Um, yeah, I see. I'm, I'm still trying to be. Uh, whoa, we whoa, have- hold on. So, so this, so this is the best day. If we close up five point five percent, which it looks like we're about to, this is the best day since a long, well, a long time. I'm sorry, since 2020. <laughs> sorry, sorry, but there's go the, by go the by this day since 2020. No, my bad, my bad, my bad. Um, there's been there's been like 13 days better than this since 1950. That's it. Yeah, it's very it's very rare, and it's always a it's always an event. Yeah. Or the end of an event that that would cause us. You have twenty oh eight oh nine and uh, an 02, and that's it. John, put this all star charts thing up on uh, the seasonals. So this does show up in the data. It's not like uh, it's not completely silly. Um, I don't know, Mike. What what do we want to say about so, this? So I'm like not super seasonally. You don't like, like seasonal. I, I, I I'm pretty skeptical. But but listen, why are you skeptical? Uh, maybe it's the same reason I am. I, I think that it's just too easy, um, and especially when you're like, no, no, no. It's when the it's when it doesn't confirm that it really matters. Like I don't know. It just sounds kind of like so. It, you it sounded like JC. Yeah, just no. It's just it. so. I'm sorry. I love JC, but that sounds kind of bullshitty to me. Like it works if it works, but if it doesn't work, then you really got to pay attention. Whatever, whatever. But the fact of the matter is, this is a, this is a nice Hold chart. On. This is the S and P 500 four year presidential election cycle. We've had multiple guests on the show. Talk, uh, Joe Terranova did a really good job. Yeah, no, this, 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 I will, I will give some credence to. So we are in the moment. It says buy stocks here. We are in the moment where, if you believe in the validity, of well, the once you get past, cycle, once you get past midterm elections, things start to pop off. Historically, the end of the second year is where you want. And to actually, be a I think I think State Street did this chart, and I'm sure Warren, you've done this a million times. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's ever been a one-year negative return after midterm elections. Never. There hasn't. Not a, not even a two. So how quarter. how can how can I not buy into that? But I'm the, not saying but that. But the it, average gain though is not so much more pronounced than the average twelve-month gain. Yeah, I think is the thing. I always see you make that point. No, on but, the yeah. podcast. but but that's a great. But point. Is it true? It's no, true, right? Absolutely. That's the way to look at it because you can always say, "Oh, it's up like ten percent in the year after." It's like, well, that's like yeah, of course it is. There's no, but, no statistical. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. But stocks are up seventy-five percent of the time over twelve-month rolling period. So we have 18. This mi- is 100% of It's 100% rate. of the time. That matters. Let's do this next one, John. So this is, this this, is, this this is from is, Warren. This is Warren's. And we, by the way, markets closed. S&P up 5.5%. Um, I mean, what what a day. Dude, Russell, people, Russell up six. People are going to be listening to this on Sunday. ARC up 15. So? I'm just saying, like, they know by now, by the time they hear this, they're listening to it. Fr- <laughs> like, are you going to do the f-ing traffic and weather next? Like, but we got, we got. <laughs> No, because you gave us an update at 358. I'm we excited. Don't also need one at I'm excited. All right. So. All right. Sorry, Warren, continue. Well, it, I mean, just as as soon as I said that seasonality, we already. So, really, so excited. Look at <laughs> No, listen, listen. No, I'm going to Vegas tomorrow. You, oh. never, you never smile like was this. It, did you just book the ticket after the. the no, closer. and I was saying to, <laughs> to Ben today, this sounds really stupid, but listen, I'm a human being. I feel much better about going with the market up like this. And oh, if, I if, totally agree yeah. with that. If the SP was down eight percent today, like it would kind of suck. You feel like a degenerate going, like yeah. with the market at a three month low, flying to Vegas. What am I doing? My so life? I'm bringing. Circus, I'll circus probably bring another uh, an extra thousand dollars just because of this rally. You hear that? Just, just to stimulate uh, the Vegas, economy. Michael, Michael's coming, and the market is ripping. So, <laughs> Mike, you going all in on black or red? Whatever you want. <laughs> you, you don't do that. What? Do you, no, I play blackjack. I've played blackjack with you. Where do we play? 
I don't know. I play. I, I might play. Oh, uh, uh, the the casino in Milwaukee <laughs> next to where oh the Bucks God. play. Remember we went with Tony? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I lasted five minutes. No, I love, I love. So what I like to do is I like to lose three hands in a row and then go all in and then lose that and then drink Bud Lights until, you know, whoever I'm with is done. Sounds about right. That's how I gamble. Uh, all right. What's, so what are we saying in this? S&P 500 performance during midterm election years. Yeah. Well, we, we did that already. Well, this is just we break out a special section. <clears throat> we, this was from our year ahead outlook because our point was like, you know, midterm election years are rough, but they're really rough when the Fed's hiking rates. And the most important, most interesting part, and again, like, you have to take it with a grain of salt because there's only so many cases. We can only slice and dice the, the election cycle so many ways. You get only so many ends in the, in the, in the study. But when rates are, when Fed's hiking rates, you don't get that post midterm rally. Now, obviously the chart's going to look different after today, but I would argue that the whole reason we are, we rally after midterms, if there is a, a phenomenon, so it's because of the uncertainty that's been removed. Mm -hmm. We didn't see that yesterday. Yeah, yeah. This is a totally different We still thing. have the uncertainty right now about the Senate. It, exactly. There's a bunch We're still of still counting votes. I think people know that it's going to be gridlock though, which is ultimately what, you know, yeah. what matters, I think. And there wasn't too big of a shift, but, um, yeah, so I, I just think that today's rally, yeah, I mean, I guess they could pile on. Like, oh, it's seasonal. We got to be, you know, we got to get involved. But, you know, ultimately, it's not, you know. I, Seasonals I is not what's making people hit the buy button. No, it's okay. the data we were talking Let's do about. this uh, fear chart from Lizanne. John, you have this? Yep. Okay. Uh, equity puts call ratio oh, spiked this was, yesterday. This was, was this yesterday? It was yesterday. To the highest since March 2008. The magnitude surpassed the March 2020 spike by a narrow degree. So this is everybody putting on protection ahead of the CPI print, which makes perfect sense. What? Mm -hmm. What? If that's the reason the market is so f***ed up this year, that is the thing that you would be buying protection from. So is there a lot of unwind in the tape today as a result of this? I, I think mean, so. We spoke about the top. The, you're the more, afraid, you're more afraid of CPI than than coronavirus. I mean, that's <laughs> that's. I mean, yes. Think about this. I think, I mean, right now I'm actually more afraid of CPI than coronavirus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I'm saying in that moment, this is very, very notable. Yeah, I mean, I think and everybody's been trained to like every every uh and I and we've we you know we've caught some um we've caught some flack over it. Is like we've we've basically been saying we think that the CPI is peaked and it's set to come down and they were calling you team transitory. Yeah, you know, whatever you want to throw at us. And what is this on LinkedIn or Twitter? Uh, Twitter, yeah. mainly Twitter. And, okay. you know, and even clients, I've had clients and even I had a prospect uh, the other day we were talking to and they said, well, I was listening to that podcast you're on, you know, a few months back and you were saying that this inflation was going to go away. And, you know, like, I'm and like, then you were like, listen, Steve Cohen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was more of, you know, just like, I, I, well, what you're selling research you? to very sophisticated people, so that's part of your but job. But wait, let's just, you what, know, you're, right? not, you're not allowed to be wrong on anything? Of course I am. I mean, I, I tell mean, them that. It's like, this is the way, this, I think some people like, you know, especially during a you know, prospect call, if you're dealing with a hedge fund or something like that, they want to just like, test you a little bit, yeah. see how you handle it. Yeah. What is your, you know, if you push you, what is, how do you respond? I and mean, that's fine. I'm yeah. used to that. It's been, you know, a whole career, so. But, right, well, you're selling research to sophisticated people, so that's mm -hmm. part of the job is you have to, you have to be able to defend your, not defend, but you have to be able to like 
back up what you're saying with more than what you're putting uh, yeah, on the yeah, page. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's like the whole, that's the name of the game. And, and I, we're, we're going to be right. What maybe hopefully for really good 55% of the time <laughs> yeah. when we say something, if you're all time, right. That's, yeah. that's an all time career. 51, yeah. whatever it is, if you can just do it one time more than you're wrong, then you're doing okay. I think the, the thing that I can't accept or we can't, we can't do is just not try our hardest and not really put like high quality work together and have a thesis and think about it and think about contingencies and things like that. Agreed. Let's, uh, let's end with, uh, some, some job stuff. So you have a chart, the largest non-recessionary one month drop in job openings. And you say, could the, work from home be inflating the data? Josh, yeah, I agree with you. This. This. They're fake job openings. They don't really exist. That's, That's right. how you lose a million job openings in a month. Yeah, and I think that the reason we looked at this is because Powell's saying there's an, the lack of balance in the job market. And so you have to really look at what Powell's saying. And so I think when he says there's a lack of balance in the labor market, he's saying there's way more openings than seekers. And that's going back to this JOLTS report. So we spent a lot of time digging into the JOLTS report. And two things. I mean, you've seen job openings skyrocket. I mean, look, by the way, this is the biggest job in JOLTS other than Corona March. Right? Yeah. Like, this is not real. This, these aren't jobs then. No. And the, the, the two things we saw is if you look at construction job openings versus uh, office office jobs, office jobs have lapped construction jobs. And so what this tells me is that these jobs, they're not, you're, they're not real openings. They're, they're, you know, if you have a work from, work from home is the let me tell you, Let me tell you why you're right. Let me tell you why you're right. We have open jobs right now. We're hiring. We're hiring for a client service associate right now. Two ads, one of them specifically targeting Chicago, and then one of them just general, like we're looking for the most qualified person just nationwide, and you could do it remote. It's really one job, but it's two different job openings. So we're a tiny firm in compared to the entirety of the American economy, but this is now how companies are forced to hire. I would love to have somebody local, but the job doesn't necessitate that they be local. So if it's the right person at the right price and they're 3,000 miles away, I'll take that person. And so I I think that that's a huge factor. In, so what was the stat? They were saying there's uh, uh, 5 million people looking for a job and 11 million open jobs. There's two open jobs for every job yeah, seeker. What, fake news. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the, 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 the really technical thing beyond the work from home change is if you look at the jolts, the survey response rate has gone from like, this was something we had to dig through white papers to find the survey response rate's gone from like 60 something percent pre-COVID to 30%. What does that mean? So the the way academics talk about it is that the, the responding companies are more healthy. So you're only getting, and then what happens is in the survey, when they're constructing the survey, they impute the survey response for the respondents to the non-respondents. Mm. And so you basically are filling that report with a whole bunch of, you're seeding it with the best, healthiest businesses, which again, it's a it's pushing the openings higher. Does the Fed understand this, what you're saying? I, I would guess they understand everything I do about the, you know, macro data, but the fact that Powell They have like that, 500 PhDs so, running around. Okay, they, so, they must understand yes, that this so Schultz thing is not Here's real. my theory on it. When I heard Powell say this, I actually said to myself, well, he has to be, he has to know what's up. And so I think that, you know, they're a political institution too. I think he's responding to the political pressure. And this to me is a really sneaky thing about the Fed that's happened is we've seen political pressure on the Fed go towards kill inflation 
and we're and, and this is the first time we've ever seen this. Look at Donald Trump back in like 2018. He was pissed that they were you know that they weren't they were doing more QE. Weights. Yeah, they yeah. do more QE. It's and so now <sighs> we're going to see the political pressure reverse to don't you dare do QE. Right. right. And and now it's going to be like, hey, don't hey, stop. You're going to cause a recession. So the Fed responds to that political pressure, and just like researchers that have. You know, or we talked about at the very beginning, like you have something you believe and then you fill it in with your, 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 you pretextualize. The Fed could do the same thing. And so I don't believe that Powell's stupid about this stuff. I don't think so either. But I agree with you. His public comments have to jibe with the, the loudest criticism he's hearing sometimes because that's how you survive. He's now, he's now the Fed president under, he's now the, the Fed chair under two different presidents, two different parties. And I feel like he wants to stay. And yeah. there might be a presidential change in two years. And I think he wants to stay for that too. Exactly. So you ha- he has to play the game. We all have to play it. Uh, you have fun here today? I did. I had a lot of fun. Do you feel like if we, like, you feel like loosened up if we start recording now? Are you good to go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go. <laughs> let's uh, do we do this thing where we close every show with, um, with favorites. So podcasts, TV shows, books. Whatever you're into. Yeah. Like, what do you think the audience should be checking out that oh, you've been man. into lately? Uh, TV show, I think it's kind of a weird thing, that's the, but a comedy. The rehearsal. The halftime report? You ever seen the rehearsal? The, the, which, which, re- the rehearsal, what is that? The, that Nathan. Uh, the, oh, I saw that. Did you see it? I saw I mean, it. Oh, I know what that is. There's one yeah. episode. Did you watch it? There's I never a, watched it, but I know okay, what it is. There's one episode of the rehearsal that it's just like, I don't know. Which one? The first one? The very first one. Yeah, so where he weird. like has did, like a guy that yeah. wants to tell his friends to see. I don't know. I thought. That did you was, like it? I did. I thought it was great. You uh, saw the whole season? Uh, the, fr- the whole season wasn't so good. I stopped okay. watching that, but I liked the first yeah. episode. That was, yeah. that stuck with me. I was yeah. like, this was a really crazy thing. What's that dude's name? Nathan um, something. Nathan something. Fielder. Had Nathan <laughs> yeah, Fielder. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, John. What do you got? Um, nothing. I, I've watched the Knicks lose a lot of games. What did I do this week? I don't know. My favorite thing this week was the stock market rally today. And, uh, last week's show with Scott Kristoloff was amazing. And today, yeah. and today's show was amazing, and and uh, and obviously um, uh, Carlton was was great last week also. But Scott in particular, like that that time thing, blew me blew me away. Yeah, yeah, blew me away. So so uh, so Michael's favorite thing is our show. I like that. I think that's I I should do that more often. I like that. Um, you hip hop guy, sort of, sort of. Yeah. All right. New Drake uh, Twenty One Savage record is excellent, and I'm not a really a, a Drake guy. This is somebody who sold his, I think he sold his music or his publishing rights for a, a billion dollars this year. Oh, man. And I have never heard a more angry person go, there's like 17 tracks or 16 tracks on the album. He's like, for some reason, really mad at everyone that didn't believe in him or whatever. It's I, I was trying to picture sustaining that level of anger after, after uh, a financial windfall like that. But somehow it's both, somehow it's really funny. And uh, I don't know. Good, good record for for anybody looking for something new to listen to. Uh, we're gonna wrap up. Is there anything that we oh, wait? Wait, wait, wait. Oh, how, what do you got? Where do people? How do people find your stuff, Warren? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, we didn't do that at the top. I don't know. Good catch, yeah. dude. How do people good find catch. your stuff? Uh, you could find me at, at Warren Pies on Twitter. Uh, Three fourteen on Twitter is at three f underscore research. Uh, and then just if you're interested in your institutional uh, high net worth individual, three the number three fourteen research dot com. Uh, is our website. You put your we're gonna link to, and we're gonna link to all your stuff in the show notes too. Yeah. Uh, is Twitter the best place to follow you? Are you anywhere else? Twitter's where I'm most active, but I can go 
weeks without saying anything. So it's kind of one of those things where, you know, if you really want something, just reach out and we're, we're really responsive. And, and you're open, you're open for business. You're we taking are on open clients. For business. Yeah. That's man. Awesome, I man. appreciate, and I really do appreciate you all, you know, just reaching out and giving us a shot to, to, you know, to tell our story here. Well, your stuff is great. And we, we love the fact that we could have you in here and have an awesome conversation and we'll have you back a hundred percent, man. All right. Hey, shout to, uh, shout to Warren. Great job today. First, uh, first time appearance on the show. Certainly not the last time. Uh, great job, John. Great job, Nicole. Duncan, feel better. And uh, hey, guys, we will see you next week. <laughs>